0: You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett.
1: Hi, this is Linda Sharkey. Um, How are you, Morag? You're on too, right? (laughs) Well, this week, I am fine. Last week, not so much. But a good 21st century story, Linda. I was in England, and I had toothache. Have you ever uh, had a toothache or a major thing when you're on traveling? Oh my God, nightmare. But here's the twenty first century solution. The X ray that my dentist in Colorado had taken just the week before. Emailed to me, shared with the English dentist, and uh, situation resolved without having to pay twice for the same treatments. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing, but also painful at the same time. Yeah, I'm sure I've got a <laughs>
2: The thing is, you did this across the pond, and that is the shades of the future for healthcare.
1: It really exactly. is.
2: It is. It is. Right? Remember when we were talking to Vivek uh, Wadra? He was saying, uh, you know, the Carnegie Mellon uh, fellow, mm-hmm. he was saying that the costs of healthcare are going to be driven dramatically down, and that is a perfect example.
1: Oh, yes. And and his his invention in terms of the diagnostic tool that he's created yes. that's currently being used in developing countries is just amazing.
2: It is amazing. It really is amazing. Hey, another 21st century thing that's sort of going by the wayside. I'm, I'm kind of reading a lot about it and you and I wrote a lot about it in the book is – you know, how are we going to retool learning for the 21st century? And I was talking to some educators recently and they were saying, you look at curriculums in high schools, grammar schools, universities, colleges, and they really haven't changed a whole lot. And, and the approaches haven't changed a whole lot. Yeah, we have MOOCs and, um, and that kind of thing. But MOOCs. Mm-hmm. Look at
1: you. Fancy terminology. mass online, open right. Uh courseware I'm gonna go okay. with. I can't remember what the C is now. That's I, right. I, I, forgot. I, I can't remember the c just
2: merely stands for courses.
1: Okay. Yes. And you're right. The, the the curriculum we need to teach reading, writing and arithmetic, the three R's as it's been okay. known, but the how we teach has not uh, evolved in millennia.
2: It hasn't evolved, and you know, as you and I say, is it really necessary? You know, I was shocked by the statistic that actually only thirty-seven percent. And I believe this is right, but our guest can correct us if, if it's wrong. But I I heard this statistic at a at a Duke event that only thirty-seven percent of the American population have college degrees, which I found a shockingly low number. I, I expected it to be much higher. But the question really becomes, how do we, you know? extend education and learning so that people can really adapt to this highly unpredictable 21st century in terms of a learning environment. And I think that is a real serious question for all of our educators. Um, so that leads us to our guest today. And I'm so very excited to have Dr. Jim Goodrich um Jim is the Stolar, uh Distinguished Chairman of, of uh, Business and the Dean of the College of Business for the Pacific University. And we're gonna be discussing these things with, with Jim and he's a long history in academe. Uh, he was also the Dean at the Marshall School of Business at Alliant in uh, San Diego, where I had the pleasure to work with him uh, and with Marshall and we we formed a, 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 a group talking about leadership. Um, which was very eye-opening and very insightful. So, Jim, thank you for joining us.
3: Happy to be here.
2: It's great to have you on. So you've been in the, a business dean for a long time. So what are, what are you seeing, Jim, as, as some of the changes um, from the, that you're seeing now in business schools
3: Um, Well, that's a really interesting uh, question, Uh, Linda and Marek. Thank you both for having me on the show. Uh, I have, as you said, experience working with large places like Pepperdine and most recently Cal State L.A., large regional public university and small places like when we started the Marshall Goldsmith School of Management and now here at Pacific University. I think the biggest thing that's happened in the last 40, 30, 40 years has been the business schools themselves. Uh, They've been moving within the the university. They've been changing a lot. When uh, back in the day, when I was in school, I have to say that business was not always the the top field on on campus, Uh, but now it tends to attract the best and the the brightest students, almost in any universities in the world. Um, Uh, And our research uh, has evolved. We've got a lot lot of good research and everything everything about finance, business business failures. failures, It's used all over the place. Our business models, our algorithms are being used to found entire companies. But as an academic success story, we become farther removed from the practical reality of business. Yeah. And uh, I think that you know that has been a big change. And and people are always talking to me about that. And they're uh, really, I think we we also in some respects fail to predict the market uh, problems, including the last big problem. Or, recession and a lot of the dislocations and creative disruption you mentioned in your book that's that's really changed the rules of the game so in the old days i guess you could say that we we had a model we tried to improve the quality decisions and outcomes and efficiency and we taught that yeah and that was useful when when we were trying to wring out a profit out of all aspects of the of the value chain but nowadays Mm -hmm. we have to concentrate on uh, dealing with the realities that you describe in the in the future proof workplace, which is building creativity and and resilience, you might say, in the face of a lot of changes, a lot of turbulence. So you know, innovation is kind of replacing efficiency as the coin yeah. of the realm here, and uh, I think that's uh, a big change. It's it's really a challenge for us, really, to to teach and and to find people who can teach that and who can really help uh, uh, to get the message out to, to the students of today about what they could expect in the workplace of tomorrow.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that I'm really seeing a lot of, and, and I know you are, Moran too, is that business is beginning, and it's an interesting thing. Lawrence Fink of um, Black Blackstone, I believe it is, the private equity uh, group, is is now saying that he is not going to be investing in companies unless they have a social, good, human capability aspect to them that's improving the quality of life for humankind, as well as being profitable. And I think that's an interesting distinction. I think it plays yeah. into the point that you're making about innovation. So how do you go about integrating innovation into what used to be a very, was designed to create predictable you know, process focused orientations and organizations.
3: Well, that's that's my biggest challenge, really, is uh, to pair students for for the 21st century jobs. Uh, as you noted in your little blurb, uh, we're doing this with a you know 20th century organization model and a 19th century calendar, where a lot of people take summers off, and we're <laughs> yeah, pairing yep. people and. It, almost 18th century governance model you know based on Harvard and the University of Chicago and yet all of our students uh, have to face the challenges that you described in seeking employment after graduation but the good news is that uh, we have a lot of uh, students today are, are very sharp uh, they understand and have a tremendous amount of uh, information at their uh, disposal um And almost all all companies are hiring. Here in Oregon, we have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country, and and every company is looking for business grads, and there's a huge number of big boomers leaving the workplace. Um, So it's not nearly as hard as it was a few years ago for business students to find jobs. Uh, I don't know that I could say that uh, it's it's a good or a bad thing, but uh, in general, the almost in spite of the, the of ourselves you know we're we're in a situation where companies are called for the first time in years are calling us saying you know who do you who do you have um, to to you know to offer who's graduating and and so forth so i think that it's significant in the sense that having a college degree although as you said and according to the OECD uh, the united states is like 14th or 15th in the world in the number of college graduates as a percentage of our population. But those who do graduate are doing well. Yeah,
0: Yeah.
2: the, the statistics do say that, you know, obviously people who have a college degree and an advanced degree do much better by X percentage points financially. Morag, I know you have a question.
1: Well, yes, there's that whole, I mean, the idea of the the degree, I've got three teenage sons who are either currently in university or about to go. So, I'm still bought into that four-year degree mindset, but I'm just wondering to what extent you're seeing a seed change for much more flexible learning, because whilst that provides a foundation, it's the how do you you build people for lifelong learning versus just front-loading it? So, I'm curious, Jim, what changes are you seeing in terms of attitudes towards the four four-year degree or even the advanced degree.
3: Well, a lot of universities now are moving more into the realm of executive education, lifelong learning, professional studies, and recognizing that education is not something you go for four years and then forget about it for the rest of your career. And more and more companies are requiring and have lifelong professions, you know, have requirements, uh, lifelong learning requirements that are uh, either explicitly or implicitly required, and so universities have to kind of set ourselves up uh, differently. Uh, we do have a good question, a good potential question about how we organize ourselves and what we teach in the in the traditional program. Like your sons will be going into or daughters, uh, and like my own kids recently graduated from, uh, but we have yet to face up really to the reality of making learning really a lifelong prospect. Uh, You've mentioned MOOCs and some of these other things. Uh, I think there's more stuff out there, but um, if you look at the completion rate, I think it's like 6% or something, even Uh for the most popular MOOCs. So I'm not really sure that that's a viable solution. I mean, there's a lot more things out there though. That's probably the encouraging thing, but uh, in terms of, the reality of all of my life and probably your kid's life uh, most of business students are undergrads. You know, they're not MBAs. Mm-hmm. They're not going on to get a PhD. Only a few go on to graduate school. They really need to be prepared for work and you know, what are going to do when they, when they get out? So I think that what we can do is to try to prepare them better Uh, and give them more, like, internships, hands-on learning opportunities while they're in school. And in our case, we also are trying to partner with business enterprises. Uh, In my job, for example, recently we developed a logistics program in conjunction with UPS. Uh, We developed ERP and and software uh, programs with SAP. So we're producing graduates, and they're training our faculty and our students so the students that graduate with those courses and that content, they're almost guaranteed, you know, locked into a job.
1: So that was, it, that was interesting. I was listening to, I'm hearing much more about that private public partnership and that was a great yeah. example there. How else are you seeing businesses stepping up to enter earlier into education and influence the curriculum, but also help prepare the students for success?
3: Well, I think there is, we have, for example, employer councils, you know, which are, you know, local employers that, that will sponsor our events, activities, uh, just so they have a chance to get close to our students and look them over. Um, I think that is increasing. I also think that we're doing a better job of connecting up with our own, um, well, with the university, our, our parts of the university, business and engineering particularly, are doing a better job job of alertly partnering, you know, with, with these larger, you know, public entities that we are their workforce in a sense of their future. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, We had a great program at Cal State LA with Boeing, you know, where they took business and engineering students, had them work together on teams, on projects that they created. It was, it was a lot of fun Uh, Mm -hmm. and it shows our students, you know, in a good way. Uh, And I think that will be certainly the wave of the future but that's not the entire university that's just professional
1: It's one part
3: i don't i don't know that the university in general is could i say is doing that
1: i love it well thank you you're listening to the future proof workplace radio show with dr linda sharkey and myself morag barrett our guest this week is jim goodrich who's dean and college of the of the college of business and Stolar distinguished endowed chair for pacific university and we're discussing the future of education in the 21st century Stay with us.
0: Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought out keynote speakers, leadership development, and organization experts, and they can help you future proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit FutureProofWorkplace.com.
2: Hi, welcome back. This is Linda Sharkey and my co-host Morag Barrett. We're talking to Jim Goodrich, Dean of the Business School at Pacific University, and we're having a great discussion about how business needs much more to integrate with the schools and schools need to really spend a lot more time looking for those kinds of partnerships to make the experience of the school learning much more relevant and real, because we know that people honestly don't learn things unless they see an absolute applicability to them. So I think that partnership is really an important piece. But here's the question I'd like to pursue a little more with you, Jim. You know, there's lots said about the millennials, and you know they, and and uh, right on their heels are now Gen Z. So people that are having trouble with the millennials, you know, are really going to have trouble with Gen Z. But how do you as an organization, what do you need to do to appeal to and attract this younger generation, and in many ways, a better educated generation, uh, more worldly, um, can get a lot more information at their fingertips than we ever possibly could?
3: Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And that's something else that I'm I'm deeply involved in. As I said, we have worked on preparing students by blending learning with hands-on opportunities and working with partnerships. Um, We also have tried to put our students in situations where they have a chance to work in teams or under pressure or in internships, which I think is great. Uh, But the companies also need to do their part. As organizations step up, they also need to understand that these students are different than those that went before. Uh, They're far more diverse backgrounds they have uh, uh they're digital natives you know they have information they can tell you the gross domestic product of croatia you know in, in 30 seconds and they also as you said before want to work in a place and in an organization that does good things for for a good purpose um i don't think that organizations are very good at this i don't think that they have you know for all they talk about cultures they haven't really developed a kind of culture that can span the generations um, I think actually we could we could learn a lot from family businesses and and local conglomerates that are already doing this that have have passed the business down to their descendants and kind of spanned the generations within within families or extended families. But organizations don't do that very well. They're used to a certain path that you have to follow, and and frankly, that hasn't changed that much uh, over the years. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think that they're set up in such a way that they're very welcoming to the millennial or gen z uh, people and i think that they don't do a very good job of making their younger workers feel included and valued yeah, um, I and, agree. and i think that that's that's really an issue
2: yeah i think that's really and uh, and an, an important aspect i just want to say it'd be be careful which privately held or uh, family owned businesses you look at though you know hierarchies are so embedded in the organizational psyche and Really, when you think about it, they're going to be going away as quickly as some of the jobs that are out there are going away. So how do you deal with those old sort of industrial frameworks that are pervasive in business learning and make it really more adaptive to what is clearly going to be a technological workplace? There's no workplace that's not going to have or run on technology.
3: Right. Well, I think part of it is uh Develop, finding a way to make people, newer, younger employees feel included and valued, is also related to a sense of place. You need to create more collaborative workspaces. You need to redesign offices. You need to get rid of the cubicle farms and get things set up in a more, in a way that that provides more opportunities for people informally to interact and and to work together in, in different ways than they, than they do now. Uh, I think a lot of the organizational arrangements that we have like you look at the new spaces of you know, someone like Apple, they're challenging, you know, the existing corner office mentality, yeah. you know, because part of the hierarchy is also protecting people at the top. You might yeah. say from, from yeah. reality. And, uh, I also think the young people, uh, feel more involved and challenged and are used to that. Uh, they, you, you have to physically include them in what you're doing. And, uh, I think that you also have to have them, allow allow them to develop, you know, in their own ways. I think that uh, trying to, you know, pressure them into a certain path is, is not always good, especially since your business plan is changing every six months.
2: Yeah, yeah. Jim, just one other quick question around this. What, how are you beginning to, or how are you building technology into the learning experience?
3: Um, Well, right now we're trying to change the nature of classrooms. That's a really big, important thing. We want to try to create more distributed learning environments. So instead of 40 students sitting in rows in front of a, with a professor in front with a whiteboard or, or a, you know, projector, uh, we're trying to create, you know, what they call pods, you know, distributed areas around the classroom. And instead of forbidding students to use their cell phones, we're trying to open up classrooms to the internet and, you know, make it kind of a window to the world, as we say. Um, We also have specially learning places like we're creating a finance lab where our students can, you know, have their Bloomberg boxes, they've got the stock market crawl, they can do filters, they can do ETFs, they can look at alternative Uh investments. And that creates a environment that's somewhat closer to the actual fast-moving world of, of business that they that, that will be involved in. And also that's more collaborative by its nature, you know, instead of just having a, a lecture-type type model.
1: Interesting. Are you
2: using virtual learning at all?
3: In the sense of online or?
2: Uh, having students being able to virtually like go into a Boeing plant and, you know, do stuff around that. I interrupted Morag. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're fine. Keep going.
2: (laughs) A lot of uh, Uh corporate education is doing some of that where they're, where they're virtually simulating things so that people can actually have the experience. Just, just curiosity.
3: Um, yeah, no, generally we, we don't have the resources to do that. I think some of the bigger places are doing that. You know, um, I think Harvard's doing that. I think Chicago's doing that. I think Stanford's doing that in our case. Um, the best approximation would be that we, we have a finance lab, where we can beam in, you know, a discussion or a person. and say they're talking about Dell computer. We can beam in somebody from Dell computer and talk about teams and how they're working. Um, as, as they're coming in. And they, they can also show visual examples or video clips of, you know, inside of their organization. But we can't do the reverse. We can't really beam our students into there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, I've got a, a two-part question. And I apologize in advance. I'm known for the multiple question. But we've had a couple of questions from listeners. And one is around, in what way are you um, changing the content, the what we're teaching? So that's part one. And then the second part of the question was, how on earth do we keep up with the pace of change that's happening, certainly in the technology era, when we think about a four-year degree or 18 years from kindergarten to graduating with an undergraduate degree, and 18 months for Moore's Law and the doubling of computing power, how do we keep up? So, what's the the new content that you're seeing that's in demand and needed, and how do we keep up with a rapid pace of change?
3: Well, I think the best way to keep up with the rapid pace of change, as I said, is to offer hands-on learning opportunities around practical current problems that businesses face. And local businesses are very interested in sharing their problems. And in some cases, also, they create little projects, you know, for our our students uh, to work on. So I think this kind of hands-on, project-centric kind of learning is – by definition, you know, a good way. Also with the partnerships, I mean, like we can take our logistics course right out of the UPS playbook. I mean, we, we can use their stuff, you know, it's readily, you know, available. So I think it's more transparent, more permeable of a model, you know, that's that's being created. And that helps us. On the other hand, businesses themselves, as you point out in your book, aren't doing a very good job of keeping up with change. So I doubt that universities are going to leap over them in terms of our ability to anticipate what's the next big thing. And even if we do, uh, it's hard to find someone that can teach it.
1: Hmm. Yes, indeed. Indeed.
3: I was just interviewed for a show on on blockchain, you know, uh, cryptocurrency.
1: Ooh, yes. And,
3: you and... it's all about this and how that works and stuff. And I said, hey, one problem, you know, who's going to teach that?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I think we're still working out as we go along. I mean, we've talked a lot here about the challenges of the students and we see it in the headlines, the funding to do it, the time to do it. We see the challenges of the businesses. What are some of the major challenges being faced by business schools and universities um, like your own uh, in the 21st century?
3: Sure. Well, the biggest issues uh, pertaining to the last topic Uh, We have a lot of new topics to teach and students who want to learn, but we have a real shortage of faculty to offer those classes. There's a shortage of faculty in all business disciplines, particularly areas like accounting and finance, where there's demand, there's consulting firms, there's not a lot of PhDs being produced, and a lot of other people can hire them for a lot more money than we can pay. Um, And we also have to incorporate certain kinds of Uh, other kinds of learning in order to supplement our current topics. So we do use MOOCs. We do have to use boot camps, other things, you know, to supplement and help to train people on on current topics. Um, In terms of universities, generally the problem is to meet the challenge of access to learning in a good way at a good price. You know, the overall model of universities themselves, as of raising tuition and offering more student aid, is broken for the private schools and public universities. As you read every day, are being defunded state by state, and wow. uh, even though we're, worldwide the United States is still the leader in higher education, that's not saying a whole lot. Um, so I think that uh, business leaders and um, legislators and, and other people that are involved in in funding and donors have to really step up and make a commitment to education. And, and I think it's up to people in, in business to encourage and support this. Um, I think that otherwise it's going to be difficult, you know, to provide the kind of, uh, workforce that, that they want, that they, that they seek. You know, I read in the paper that, uh, you know, overall states have defunded higher education by almost 40%, you know, in the last, you know, few years. And, uh, you can't make up for that just by raising tuition. I mean, at some point you're going to have a problem. Um, I think also in universities themselves we have to get people to stick around more in leadership positions. You know, college presidents these days have less tenure than football coaches. Um, wow, that's you know, an that. issue. You know, that it's going to be difficult.
1: What? So, go, go on, ahead. Linda. No, after you. <laughs> it's all yours. All mine. So, so I was curious. We we talked about MOOCs and the online learning, but I'm also reading a lot more about the nano degrees, the bite-sized learning. So, traditionally, we've had our K through twelve, certainly in the US uh, and most Western societies, in the four-year degree. To what extent are you seeing demand for the the three-month this, the six-month that, maybe the year-long, but spread over a two-year window? H- how much are you seeing more of a demand for bite-sized? just-in-time learning, Jim?
3: Well, there's a big demand for bite-size just-in-time learning, but it's not coming from young people or high schools. It's coming from the continuing education model that you mentioned. There, You just walk into the office nowadays of a person, and they'll have all these certificates on the wall of the various uh, courses, certificates, learnings that they've had recently. I think there's a lot more um, demand for that now, and many people would like to do those um, deep dives, we call them, in in a university setting, and an uh, area, especially where a university has a has a knowledge, um, or can pull together a small conference or a panel of people around. I don't know supply chain management or entrepreneurship mm-hmm. or international business. Those yeah. are very very popular, you know. But I think that's more related to the lifelong learning topic than it is. It's a hard sell for young people today to say skip the four year college. I know Peter Thiel is these people are sponsoring this stuff, but, yeah. you know, just get a bunch of competencies and put them together to form a degree. But unfortunately, employers or students just aren't really buying that. I mean, they're really looking to know, where did you go to school? Oh, to yeah. in. Mm-hmm. changed any? It hasn't changed much, you know, in the last few years. On the other hand, after you get out, now there's this realization that you have to show and demonstrate that you're keeping up. And especially now yes. with multiple generations of people in the workforce, I think the challenge for big boomers like myself is to show that we're keeping up with technology and the challenge of younger people is to show that they can accept the responsibilities of leadership.
1: Agreed. No, and I'm as guilty with the three teenage boys going through university. So we'll talk more about the fact that we're in that bridge generation between what was in terms of our education systems and what needs to happen for the 21st century. You're listening to the Futureproof Workplace Radio Show with Dr. Linda Sharkey and myself, Morag Barrett. Our guest this week is Jim Goodrich, who is Dean of the College of Business at Pacific University. And we're talking about the needs of education in the 21st century. So do stay with us.
0: We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future proof your organization with the Futureproof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Hey, Jim.
2: We are talking about um, the role of education and and, and I I find it really interesting that you say that the students themselves really still are uh, interested in in having uh, some kind of that seal of approval that they've graduated from school. But, you know, we switched the tables around and said, what are the schools doing in terms of strategic planning. And the last time we talked, you talked about how important strategic planning is, but it strikes me it's really got to be in, at a different level. So how is strategic planning being done in higher education and how, why is it so important?
3: Well, I've been involved in strategic planning now for over 20 years and in over 30 different institutions or business units of universities. Uh, to me, it's a, it's kind of a two-parter. I mean, on the one hand, the universities are faced with – it's like your iceberg is melting or those type of books, you know. Change yeah. is kind of overtaking us, and, and, and if we're not careful, we'll be kind of swallowed up by it. I mean, you only have to read the paper to see how many universities are closing their doors or are shutting down part of their operations. Um, and universities, although, of course, they're not a business – but they could be much more business-like in terms of how they're organized and and uh, how they respond to change and adversity. Um, so that's where strategic planning becomes important. It's really just a form of preparing universities to help them manage change. And in many cases, uh, uh, that involves reallocating some resources. It involves focusing on different things, or in some cases, just a a recognition that they cannot be all things to all people, that they have to concentrate on certain areas or things that they're good at. And uh, while that may seem obvious to to a business, uh, it's not necessarily built into the DNA of universities to respond in this way.
2: Yeah, the other thought that comes to my mind is, you know, you've done so much with Marshall Goldsmith. You've been so engaged in coaching all of these years for the better part of 20 years. What role do you see coaching playing in all of this? And are you leveraging that at all with the students?
3: This is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I spent some time, especially in the last seven or eight years working in these little internal academies to help prepare uh, people like faculty to become department chairs and department chairs to become uh, you know, leaders in various ways or deans and others to move up in the system. It's just like in, in any large, complex organization. You have to prepare people, and coaching helps to do that. Where in business, it's kind of assumed you'll be assigned a coach when you take on these responsibilities. Universities aren't set up that way. And where in business, people are prepared or given stretch assignments or somehow or another put in the line of succession. In in universities, people are often suddenly thrust into positions of great leadership and 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 power and they just really have no idea how to handle it much less in terms of of succession planning like i said there's a lot of turnover at the top these days we need to do a better job of preparing our own people to take on positions of leadership and great uh, responsibility i think that you know there's professional organizations and people that try to do that uh, but i think universities themselves need to kind of build in a coaching component and some universities, like North Carolina, like Texas, they have done that. Uh, but I would say that they're in the, in the definite minority. Um, also, we could use a lot of the knowledge and ideas that we've developed in coaching over the years, like with the Marshall Goldsmith and other organizations. You know yourself that we've really refined and developed coaching as a, as a kind of a system. And in many ways, we could just imp- put that directly into the SETI. It's just people have to be open to it. They have to become aware that that it even is a, a resource, you know, that that they could use, that they could follow up on. So, one of my goals in my my legacy is I try to I try to coach people myself. I try to bring people into that. I'm introducing uh, with Dr. Frank Wagner, a a mutual friend of ours, uh, a peer coaching component into our MBA program so I can get students to work competitively and uh, collaboratively instead of competitively and -hmm. to understand that getting an MBA is kind of a personal development. It's not just a professional getting your ticket punched. Um, I think there's a lot of good ideas that come out of the coaching profession that uh, could easily be employed and will be very, very helpful to people as they move up into positions of leadership and and higher education.
1: I love what you're saying there, especially around the peer coaching, because one of the mistakes that um, or unintended consequences from the past approach to education is this dog-eat-dog approach, the me first. Whereas, as we know, the workplace, whether you're in education as a workplace or in the corporate environment, wherever, it's one of the biggest team sports. That we get to play in. It's a we first um, mindset. But I'm curious, how are you applying some of those coaching techniques and your passion of coaching to help your faculty um, adjust their game to keep up with the needs of a modern education system?
3: This is a very good question, Morag. You're right. We need to try and we are building into our classes, you know, more of a collaborative Kind of learning environment, but we also have to train our faculty, you know, not to just be, they're used to people, you know, the number one value of most faculty is autonomy and independence. Mm-hmm. That's part of why they yep. went and got their PhD. And a lot of their uh, thinking has not changed. They're used to people consulting with them on the basis, uh, you might say, of their expertise, and rather than, you know, thinking of us as a collaborative you know, kind of uh, of learning experience. And uh, so we're going to have to restructure some of our classes and we're going to have to retrain some of our professors and we're going to have to get them to buy into this concept because otherwise you're still going to have a sage on the stage model instead of the guide on the side. You know, they're, they're going to just assume that people are just a blank slate and they only really can learn about stuff when they talk, where I think increasingly also faculty are, under pressure to cover, you know, more topics, like especially in accounting or they have a CPA exam, they have other things. Mm -hmm. They just feel that if they don't cover a certain number of topics that that it's going to be, you know, really hell to pay. And I think that that's really a problem for the students because number one, the students always have this breathless feeling that they're trying to catch (laughs) up to the topic rather than actually applying it to anything. And number two, it puts the professor in that kind of position that uh, makes it difficult. The other thing is with new learning environments, with hybrid courses, with flipped classrooms, with uh, weekend type environments and offsites, uh, people are going to have to learn to deliver their information in a much different way.
1: Oh, that's it's exciting. So, what as you look to the future of education in the twenty-first century, what most excites you and keeps you in the role of dean?
3: Well, I love working with young people. I have to say, I've I've been a coach. I've worked with executives. I've worked with all kinds of people. Um, I'm also interested because formerly half of my life was spent as a as a professor and a consultant or, and related mm-hmm. to leadership. And now I'm actually in a leadership position, so I find that uh, I'm I'm really really generative and and feeling inspired. You know, by looking at you know great. Uh, models of leadership and thinking about how we can apply what we know about leadership, you know, into higher education. I think that it's a difficult thing because higher education, much like healthcare, you know, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of outside money coming into the field. There's all sorts of new technological developments that make it possible. I think that we're really going to have and need, you know, leaders that can step up and really start to get you know, digest this, you know, take it in. And I think we have to become, as I said, more permeable, more open uh, organizations, universities are traditionally not in an ivory tower almost, you know, sense of being kind of thinking of themselves as a retreat from the world. I think that we have to push in a direction of being connected. And I think building connections, that's that's what I'm about. That's what I like to do. And that's that's what I plan to do for the rest of, of, of my career.
2: Mm-hmm. Love that.
1: I love that, too. So for for our listeners, whether they're parents like me with offspring about to go to university or maybe uh, high school students who are about to select the course that they're going to go and study, what advice do you have for them?
3: Well, I think the for the young people, the advice that I would say to them now, since they're at a stage where they're making choices, but they're still at a very early stage, is First of all, for them to be thoughtful, you know, in terms of what are they specifically kind of thinking of? What do they want to do? And how would they prepare themselves for that? Um, They need to go talk to people, you know, that do that. You know, like Mm -hmm. they say, I want to go into public health or something. Well, Well, why don't you talk to some people that do that? And I think that they need to become much more knowledgeable, just as you and I do, I just sent my placement officer a list from the Portland, Vancouver Business Journal that's 30 companies that are hiring like crazy, which is true. 29 of them I never even heard of. I mean, so there's a lot, a lot of mid-sized growth companies out there that aren't on ours or anybody's radar screen but they are the ones that actually are hiring. So the students of today have to think about they're probably going to end up in one of these organizations. They're not going to be ending up in a big organization like your IBM or Nike or something, and they're not going to spend their whole life in one organization. So they need to start thinking and informing themselves about, you know, thoughtfully for what I want to do, what I need to do to prepare myself, and then how can I align myself with some kind of growth area or growth industry? They have to become in a sense, more future-oriented. And yet this is the time of their life where they're you know, they're just so focused on the next thing or taking their SADs or something rather than really thinking mm-hmm. bigger picture. You know, well, what are the big areas that are going to be growing? And, and yeah, I think there's AI, there's automation, there's robotics, there's other things that will take away some jobs, but there are a lot of other jobs that will be created from that. So I think it's important to sort of think about What is the future going to look like, and how am I going to be a part of it? Even though I know that's very hard right now because you're just thinking about getting into college or something. But I think if you can, the more you can do uh, to to put yourself ahead of the game, the more knowledgeable you can become about stuff that doesn't necessarily just forming, you can latch on to something that's growing, uh, the more likely it is that you'll be aligning yourself, no matter what your major or what you study, with things that are going to be successful in the future.
2: Yeah. I love that you're talking about, you know, the whole notion of curiosity and going out there, finding out, just don't assume, you know, so that you are prepared to be curious and keep yourself prepared, actually. It's a good fundamental part of personal learning. But, Jim, you know, we're coming to the close of the show, and I'm wondering, what are the three messages or the three insights that you want our listeners to take away from our discussion
3: Sure. Well, in no particular order that, as you yourself have pointed out in your book and elsewhere, the world of work is changing. So are are the prospects for graduates. So um, I think that's really, really important for our students of today to know and for us to open doors for them. Also, since um, companies are going to be hiring these students. And since those students are the future workforce for them, they need to start thinking more carefully about how to adapt. What are these young people looking for? And if it's more purposeful or if it's more, uh, practical, or if it's more, um, you know, ways that they can be welcoming to to newer and younger employees and span the generations, that's extremely important and, and how they're going to develop these, these young people, um, In terms of higher ed, I just think we need to work on our leadership. We need to recognize we're at an important crossroads and we need to start introducing more, I would say business-like practices such as strategic planning and coaching into the higher education field.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we talked about, Morag asked um, a really great question about what advice do you have to students you know, it's parents who really guide students one way or the other or their children into what they need to uh, do next, we have two minutes uh, left in the show. Jim, what piece of advice would you give to parents as they're thinking about how can they best coach and guide their children?
3: Well, if you're a parent and you have more than one child, you certainly know and recognize that they're quite different to each of them in the way that they perceive the world and the kind of skill set that they have and the sort of things that they think about and that they want to do. So the most important thing with working with your kids is to let them develop and get ideas for themselves. So I just try to expose them as many things as possible, get them thinking and just open up the conversation. Because if I can get them in that situation where they are curious and where they then want to talk to me, um that's to me that's the best type of situation because then I can I can answer any question that they have, but it's kinda of like you have to create a situation where they're asking the right kind of questions if you if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um also I think that it's important for me, just in terms of my advice, I always tell my own kids, you know, try to think about and align yourself with something that's growing and gonna be successful. I mean you may say that you always wanted to go to law school, but, you know, just, is is that really what's happening in the future? You know, so right. I want to I, I'm a way I'm a little bit less inclined to say there's always room at the top and saying, why don't you think about what you really want to do and how you could be able to put yourself in a position to do that?
2: Yeah, I love that advice. It's great advice. Morag, we're less than a minute to the
1: show close. Uh, last word, last thought. No, just love the talk. It's the it's the future is here. It's not tomorrow. It's today.
2: Yeah, it cool. sure
1: is. Well, Jim, thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so
2: glad you brought Jim uh, Frank Wagner in for peer coaching. I think that's a wonderful addition. I'm interested to talk with you more about how that's working with the students and the faculty. Frankly, but thank you so much. Yeah. For- well,
3: I think. We- Appreciate that, and uh, definitely we'll have to get you out here to talk about the Future Proof Workplace. We need more it. than just our HR professors telling the students what's happening in the world.
1: Yeah, I would love to do it. We, we, we Road, trip. Road trip to Portland. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, Jim, thank you, and I'll talk to you soon.
0: I look forward. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.